Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Glorious Gospel. All right, well, around, around A.D. 55, no one knows the exact year or month uh, precisely, but around, scholars say, A.D. 55, the Apostle Paul wrote a very important creed. And so what's the definition of creed? If you're taking notes, it's a set of beliefs that, note this, guides the action of a person or group. A set of beliefs that guides the action of a person or group. Now, notice that our set of beliefs are supposed to guide our what? Our actions. In other words, it's not enough to just give intellectual assent to a certain set of beliefs. No, rather, those beliefs should change our lives. And so millions of people today around the world, both Catholic and Protestants, by the way, but millions of people are gonna stand today and they're gonna repeat religious creeds. And so they're gonna do that on Sunday, but there's a problem. For many of them, again, both Catholic and Protestant, for many of them, they're gonna say it with their lips, but their lives are gonna remain unchanged for the rest of the week. In other words, they're gonna, they're gonna recite a creed, a Christian creed on Sunday, but then Monday through Saturday, you know, they're gonna lie, they're gonna cheat their neighbor, they're gonna de uh, demean people, they're gonna look at pornography, they're gonna sleep with their boyfriend or girlfriend. And so what that tells me is that their set of beliefs is in their head, but it never went down into their hearts. And the reason I know it never went down into their hearts because if that set of beliefs would actually go down into our hearts, then it would absolutely change the way we live. And so our Christian belief, that, that belief that we profess, that belief that we just sang about, it's not supposed to just stay in our heads. It's supposed to go down into our hearts and then eventually it's supposed to go down into our feet. In other words, we understand it with our heads and then at some point we accept it in our hearts personally for us. And then eventually what happens is our life is changed and that's evidenced because it goes down to our feet and now it's changing the way we walk. Now it's changing the way we live. Now, today we're gonna to look at a very special creed. Special because, as I said earlier, it's the earliest known Christian creed that we have. And again, Paul wrote it around AD 55. And what you need to know is that that is within, listen, 25 years of the death and resurrection of Christ. That's a very short time, 25 years. Now, I really hope that today you'll put your thinking caps on. I really hope today that you'll tune in because there's gonna be people who are gonna question your faith at work or in your neighborhood or on Facebook or your loved ones, right? And it's not, not, it's not enough to say, well, I just believe. I heard some people recently say, you know, um, I overheard a conversation. Well, everybody just, you know, has their own beliefs. Well, well guess what? There's only one belief that's true. Only one. So if everybody has their beliefs, here's the problem with that. Everybody dies. 
10 out of 10 people do not make it off this planet alive. And we will stand before our judge one day and we had better get this right. We shouldn't be nonchalant about it. We shouldn't be casual about it. We shouldn't have an attitude, well, you believe what I, well, you believe and I'll believe what I, be, what I believe. No, there is only one belief that's correct. You say, that's narrow-minded. Well, that's the Bible. Accept it or, or leave it alone. It's your choice. But you will give account for your choice. And so, critics will try to defame Christianity by saying that it's based on mythological legend. But what they fail to understand is that legends develop over very long periods of time. Check out um, what Simon Kistmaker says. So true right here. Normally, the accumulation of folklore, myth, legend, among people of primitive culture takes how many generations? Many generations. See, it's a gradual process spread over how long? Centuries of time. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not enough for us to say, you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe. No, you should know, you should be able like that to be able to defend your faith with some concrete evidence of why we believe what we believe is true. And so when you're talking about legend and folklore and, and myth, that develops over centuries of time. For example, King Arthur, right, and the Knights of the Round Table, and what King Arthur supposedly did. Do you know that that is a myth? And do you know that the details of that whole story um, developed over centuries, over a very long period of time? But the existence of Jesus Christ and what he did is a fact that was written down within 25 years of his death and resurrection. 25 years is too short a time for legend to creep in and distort the facts. Now, do you understand that? Let me say it again. Please get this. You can tell people who try to say Christianity is just myth. No, 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 no. 25 years is too short a time for myth or legend to creep in and distort the facts. So don't be duped by people who don't know anything the life of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection, it's a fact of history. Now look at verse one here. Here's our classic passage in the scriptures to prove what I'm saying is true. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the what? The gospel, which I preached to you. It's important that we not only have teachers in the church, but also preachers. The gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. Now, literally in the Greek, and maybe some of your translations say this, it's in the present passive tense, and so literally it's by which also you are being saved. I'm not going to get into a whole discussion about this. Remember, remember we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And one day, as we just sang about, we will be saved from the presence of sin at the resurrection. Hey, this is in the present passive tense. By which also you are being saved if 
you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ, here's the creed, Christ died for our sins according to the what? And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the what? Okay, verse five, and that he was, what's the next word? Seen, everybody say seen. seen. Okay, he was seen by a whole bunch of people. Cephas, that's Peter, and then the 12. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep or died. There's that metaphor of sleeping. After that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles, and then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time, verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored. Everybody say labored. Okay, grace, Paul did not use grace as an excuse to be lazy. He used grace as a motivation to live for Jesus Christ with everything he had. And so he labored more abundantly than they all, all the other apostles. He says, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Okay, look at verse one again. Let's tear this apart. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. What does the word gospel mean? Okay, Christianity 101, the word gospel simply means good news. Good news. But the way I often see Christians acting and the way I also um, uh, discern the, the, the attitude of some Christians, you would think the gospel was bad news. Right? As people walk around like Eeyore, you know, as, as you, how, how you doing? Oh, just trying to make it, brother, right? What? We believe in, in the gospel. It's good news, right? So why is it good news? It's good news because it gives us a position in God's family. What could be better than that? God's eternal family. That's something to be happy about, right? It's good news not only that, but because it gives us a peace that surpasses all understanding. How many of you guys have experienced peace in your heart and life? That's pretty good news, right? It's good news because it gives us a purpose for our lives. Man, you don't have to walk around aimless in life, and you certainly don't have to get your purpose from the world and what they say life is all about. Don't do that. Man, your purpose comes from the gospel. It's, it's, it's to live for Christ. It's all about him. He's gotta be the center. He's gotta be everything. And not only that, but it gives you and I a power to live for Christ. And that's why the gospel is glorious. So what I'm gonna do for the rest of this message is I'm gonna share with you four concrete evidences of why the glorious gospel, which is contained in the earliest Christian creed that we know of, why that glorious gospel is absolutely a fact. It's true. Now, 
Here's your four evidences. And, and as, as, as the message progresses, you ought to write this down, take pictures, whatever you want to do. Go back and watch it online. But, but get these four evidences, memorize them. That way, when you find yourself in a conversation, you won't say, well, you believe what you believe and I'll believe what I believe. Or you won't say, you know, um, um, I just believe it. No, 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 no. You'll be able to give them four concrete evidences that are intelligent of why we know that what we believe is absolutely true. So let's look again at verses one and two. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you, that's the church of Corinth, by the way, if you're new to our study, which also you, church of Corinth, received, and in which you stand, by which also you are being saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The f- okay, so Paul shared the glorious gospel with the Corinthian church. Remember, he was there, he shared. What did they do? They received it, okay? Some of you guys, right now, you're just giving intellectual assent to a set of beliefs. You've never personally received it. That means you're not saved. That means, God forbid, if you died, you're not gonna go to heaven. It's up here. It's not in here. Jesus is gonna say, depart from me, I never knew you. You got to personally receive it. That's what the Corinthians did. They received it, and then they took their stand on it, right? And the church of Corinth was born. And Paul didn't just preach the gospel to the church of Corinth. Those of you who know the book of Acts, you know that he preached it in a lot of different places, and a lot of churches, ecclesia, called out ones, were born all over the Roman Empire, And so your first point, if you're taking notes, here's the first evidence that the glorious gospel is true. It's the evidence of the church. The evidence of the church. Okay, so the fact that the church exists in our fallen, horribly depraved world (laughs) The fact that, as Peter would say, you know, this chosen people, this royal priesthood, right? This, he he calls us um, this holy nation. The fact that the bride of Christ, and remember Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay, and so the fact that the church, the called out ones, exists in this fallen world is part of the proof that the glorious gospel is true. Paul said in verses three and four that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Okay, so think, think about this with me. If Christ did not die for our sins and if Christ did not rise again the third day, then there would be no church in Corinth. There would be no letter to the Corinthians that we've been studying since May. And if Christ did not die for our sins and Christ did not rise again the third day, there would be no church in the first century 
also in Jerusalem and Antioch and Rome and Galatia and Ephesus and Philippi and Colossae and Thessalonica and Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea and in hundreds of other places. If Christ did not really die for our sins and rise again the third day, then Christianity would never have spread like wildfire across the Roman Empire to the point where it becomes the official religion of the empire later in history. And since that day, continuing to spread around the world to this point, I'm not saying all these people are necessarily saved, but at this point, one third of the people on our planet proclaim to be Christians. All right, so if Christ did not die for our sins and did not rise again the third day, then there would be no gathering of believers right here in poor St. Lucie called Calvary PSL. But we're here. Why? Because Christ did die for our sins and he did rise again. That's why we're here, to worship him. And so this is part of the proof. And so billions, not millions, billions of people over the last 2,000 years have received, right, personally received this gospel, this good news. And what has happened is when they received it, the Holy Spirit came to live inside of them and it went from their head to their hearts and then it was evidenced by the way they walk and by the way they live. He lives in our hearts. Back in the day, um, my wife and I, used to be along to a church and the church would sing a song called He Lives. Maybe some of you who are at least our age or older remembers this. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me why I know he lives? Okay, you older people help me out here. Because he lives within Wow, a lot of old people here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> kidding. But how many of you would say, whether you know the song or not, Pastor Mike, I know that he lives in my heart. Just raise your hand, okay? All right, so there's proof, part of the proof right there, that the glorious gospel is absolutely true. But it, it gets better than that. Look at verse three. He says, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the, help me out again. And that he was buried and the third day he rose again, the third day according to the what? Okay, so the next evidence that the glorious gospel is absolutely a fact and true. This is my favorite. It's the evidence of the scripture. People who say, well, you believe what you believe and I'll believe what I believe have no clue. No clue of the evidence, the compelling, irrefutable evidence of the book that you have open in your laps today, the scriptures. Now when Paul said, according to the scriptures, I don't personally believe he was talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, we think maybe Matthew was written by the time Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians. We pretty much are sure Mark, Luke, John were not written yet. So I don't believe he's talking about the Gospels. What he's talking about is the Hebrew Scriptures. We, we also call that the Old Testament. Okay, so if you walked into church first time in your life and you've never opened a Bible, here, here's what you gotta understand. The Bible has an Old Testament first half and a New Testament second half. 
The Old Testament are called the Hebrew Scriptures. It's the God-breathed word from God to man, to Israel, to the Jews. And it always, all through the Hebrew Scriptures, it talked about a Messiah's coming, a Messiah's coming, a Messiah's coming. And then we now get to a, the New Testament, and the New Testament is about the revelation of that Messiah, Jesus Christ, Christos in the Greek, which means the anointed one or the Messiah. And so again, you gotta get this. The Old Testament foretold the birth, the ministry, the suffering, the death, and the resurrection, and even the ascension of the coming Messiah, okay? The first half of the Bible, I know it's longer than a half, but the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, foretold details about the life of the coming Messiah. It told, foretold his birth, details about his ministry, details about his suffering, details about his death, details even about his resurrection. And so Jesus came. Thank God for the New Testament. And so Jesus came. And, and, and what you got to understand is that after the resurrection of Christ, that's when he got up out of the grave in his glorified body. And by the way, isn't it amazing that the eternal, uncreated God chose to become a man and he's in the body of a man forever? Wow, that's a sacrifice. I don't know if I would have done that. If I'm the eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God, I'm gonna say, okay, I'm gonna become a man and I'm gonna be in that body forever. Now he's still omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, but, but Jesus right now in heaven, he's in a body, a resurrected body. Okay, and so when you, when you think through the implications of all this, after that resurrection, but before his ascension, Jesus would appear in that body and disappear and appear and disappear for a period of 40 days. And during that time, he would reveal himself alive after he had been dead to select few people, actually more than few, as we'll find out. One of his appearances, uh, according to Luke 24, was the two guys on the road to Emmaus. These guys were disciples of Jesus. They loved Jesus, but they witnessed the murder of Jesus. And so now that Jesus is dead, you remember the story, these two guys walking to Emmaus are all bummed out. They're distraught disciples. And now here's one of the glorious appearing appearances of Jesus, but he doesn't come like in great light. He comes incognito. And he begins to walk with these two guys. And they just think, you know, he's a normal guy. And he enters into a conversation. Some of you guys have got to start entering into conversations with lost people. You're out there. Be that salt, be that light. You don't have to give the whole gospel A through Z and lead them in the sinner's prayer every time. Enter in the conversation. Maybe it's a minute, maybe it ends up being 10 minutes, maybe it ends up being an hour. Enter into the conversation. We need you to do that. And Jesus enters into the conversation. And what happens is that he begins to talk to them about eternal things and he begins to address the fact that they are distraught, that they're bummed out. And, and check out what Jesus says to these guys. Oh, foolish ones. 
Now, as you enter into conversations with lost people, I, I advise you not call them fools. But he's Jesus, he can do what he wants, right? Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart. There's our problem right there. Slow of heart to believe in all the who? Prophets, okay, he's talking about Hebrew scriptures, Old Testament, first half of the book, prophets. All the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ, that's the Messiah, to have, what's the word? Suffered these things and to enter into his glory. Then he goes on to say this. And beginning at Moses, I love it, love it, love it. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, what's the word? He expounded. God, give us more preachers and teachers who will just expound his word. That's where it's at. The problem is our, our culture today is slow of heart to believe. So that's why they're, they're disregarding this book and they're going with these man-made speeches that are slick and sexy and make them feel good and draw crowds. No, we gotta get back to this. He expounded to them in all the what? The things concerning himself. What a Bible study that was. I wish I was there. I will hope to watch it on DVD when I get home to heaven. It's gonna be awesome. And so no doubt, as Jesus is giving them this amazing Bible study, he took them, don't turn there, I'll just hit it and move on. He took them to the Psalms. By the way, he didn't have scrolls. You know, he didn't have a big old satchel with, let's pull up the scroll of the Psalms. Okay, he is, he, it was, it's his word. And he, no doubt he, he shares with them, guys, come on, cheer up. Don't you remember in the Psalms, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As David, 10th century BC, predicts, foretells the suffering of the Messiah, the coming Messiah. Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. It's exactly what they said at the foot of the cross. Remember guys? I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, broken pieces of pottery. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me, God the Father, brought me, the Son, to the dust of death. The two guys are all bummed out because the one they thought was the Messiah was dead. He can't be the Messiah. Um, go back to the prophets the prophet said, Messiah's gonna die. Cheer up, guys. It's supposed to happen. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. 10th century BC. They pierced my hands and my feet. He says, I can count all my bones. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Wow, I believe what I believe, you believe what you believe. No, what I believe is absolutely a fact. How do you know? 10th century BC, they divided my garments among them? You can't make this stuff up. What we believe is true, ladies and gentlemen, and no doubt during that amazing Bible study, Jesus took him to Isaiah to show him why he was crucified. He was wounded. In the Hebrew, that means pierced through. 
He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, the spanking, the, the, the discipline of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, even the, the whipping, sick, uh, eighth century BC, by his stripes we are healed. No doubt he took him to Daniel. And I'm not going to do it today because it'll take two hours, but one day soon I hope to preach on Daniel 9 again because we have so many new people in our church. But what an amazing, mind-blowing prophecy that after 62 weeks, Shabuah in the Hebrew, weeks, not seven-day week, but seven-year week, and you add that, by the way, I'm going to really try not to get into this, uh, to verse 25, there's a seven weeks, seven plus 62, 69 weeks, 69 seven-year periods, 483 years, 173,880 days. What's going to happen? Messiah shall be cut off. That word means executed. That's 6th century B.C. Why? Did he do something wrong? No. Help me out with the last sentence there. Not for himself. Why? He died for our sins. It's all right there. And no doubt during the amazing Bible study, Jesus took him back to the Psalms to show him that even the Psalms, the Old Testament, the Hebrew prophets prophesied his resurrection. Check it out. For you, David says to the Father, will not leave my soul, David's soul, in Sheol, that's the grave, nor will you allow your, what's the next two words? That's Messiah. That's the prophecy of the Messiah. No, nor, Father, will you allow your Holy One, the Messiah, to see corruption. So Messiah's gonna die, but his body's not gonna corrupt in Sheol or the grave. No, why? There's a resurrection coming. 10th century B.C. I go on and on and on, but suffice it to say that over and over and over again, the Old Testament shows the details of the life of the coming Messiah and only one person in history fulfilled all those prophecies. His name is Jesus. Jesus. There's so much power in that name. That's why when you're on the break room table at work, you can say every word in the book. But say, do this this week. Say the word Jesus and look at the reaction you get. There's power in that name. There's power in the heavenlies. Demons freak out when you say the name Jesus. Because he's the only way. So don't zip your lips and never say the name. Say it. Now don't be obnoxious, okay? Please don't be obnoxious about it. But in love, say his name. He's the only way. Enter into the conversation. Look at verse 5. So not only do we have the evidence of the church, not only do we have the evidence of the scriptures, now look at verse five, Jesus, alive after he had been dead, was seen by Peter and the 12, over 500 brethren at once. Verse seven says, by James, and then all the apostles. In verse eight, Paul says, even he was seen even by me. And so the third evidence that the glorious gospel is true, this is a big one, the evidence of eyewitness accounts. Well, Pastor Mike, what about Islam? Is everybody looking at me? It's false. 
absolutely false, A to Z, completely wrong. That's, how can you say that? That's so insensitive. Because, ladies and gentlemen, there's only one way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one means no one, comes to the Father but through me. Not Islam, not Buddhism, not through some Dalai Lama guy. Right? And whenever I get off on this, I always get emails, you know, you're so insensitive. Beep, 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 right? I have to speak the truth. There's one way. One way. And it's not enough for you to have it in your head. You got to get it down here in your heart. So it changes the way you live with your feet. But there's an evidence of eyewitness accounts. Paul said the resurrected Christ was seen by Peter and the 12 and 500 brethren and James and all the apostles and later by Paul himself. That's a lot of people. That's a whole lot of people that saw him alive after he had been dead. And so, let me give you an example. If somebody commits a crime and there's over 500 witnesses that see that person who committed that crime, okay, so like for example, if today, I've shared this before, but, but today if, if somebody, God forbid, were to grab a lady's purse right in the middle of service and, and the lady's like, no, you're not, right? And there's a struggle and everybody is looking at this guy. He finally just, right? Now, I know that would never happen in this church, and if it did, there's a bunch of gray-shirted guys. You don't want to do that in this church. I'll just say that, all right? But let's say it happened theoretically, and then the guy's running out the door. Okay, and then later the police apprehend him, and 500 of us go down to the police station, and over 500 of us say, in a lineup, that's him, that's him, that's him, that's him. There's not a judge in the world that would not convict that person. Okay, the power of over 500 eyewitnesses who saw Jesus alive after he had been dead, that's what you call impact. Um, Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for Christ, if you never read it, you should read it, but this is what he said about 500 witnesses. If you were to call each one to the witness, each one of the witnesses to a court of law, to be cross-examined for just 15 minutes each, and you went around the clock without a break, it would take you from breakfast on Monday until dinner on Friday to hear them all. And after listening to 129 straight hours of eyewitness testimony, who could possibly walk away unconvinced? Oh, but the resurrection's a fable. Oh, it's just a myth. Oh, they made it up. Listen. 500 plus people saw him alive after he had been dead. Well, how do you know Paul didn't just lie about it in verse six? Look, look again at verse six. The apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth, after that Jesus was seen, the resurrected Christ was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Well, how do you know he didn't just lie? He, he made that up. Well, look at the rest of the verse of whom the greater part, that's, that's most of those 500 people that saw him, remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep or some have died. And so if you are a skeptic, okay, if you're with me, can you say amen? amen. 
Okay, we have our thinking caps on. We're thinking through this. We're not gonna just say, oh, you know, I just believe it because I believe it. No, 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 no. Okay, AD 55, at least 250 plus of the people who saw Jesus alive after he had been dead are still alive when Paul writes this. Paul says, if you're a skeptic in the first century reading this, and there were lots of skeptics just like there are today, go knock on their doors. And they'll all tell you the same thing. We saw Jesus alive after he had been crucified. Irrefutable evidence. What you believe is true, what you believe is a fact. Now before I move on, I have to say this, that most of the 12 original apostles were martyred. And, and, and that's, that's part of the evidence too, I didn't make it a point, but I just wanna kinda give you a subnote here. They were martyred for what they believed in and they died horrible deaths. And you know what some skeptics will say because they're so slow of heart to believe because they have such hard hearts? They'll say something like this, what's the big deal? Religious radicals die for their beliefs all the time. Look at the 9-11 terrorists. They died for their belief. Would you know how to answer that one around the break room table at work? They died for their, well, let me help you out. First of all, when radical Muslims give themselves to martyrdom, it's with the goal to kill other people. When the apostles gave themselves to martyrdom, it was because they wanted to save people, not kill people. Don't even go there. It's disrespectful to go there. It's outlandish to go there. But some who have read more than a carpenter, we've given out thousands of copies in the last 11 years, and some of you, it's kind of sitting on your night table with dust on it. You ought to read it. But here's a point that he makes in that book. People may be willing to die for what they believe to be true. This is powerful right here. No one dies for a known lie. Nobody. The 9-11 terrorists, the Muslim radicals, flying their planes into the Twin Towers, they really thought, they really believed in what they were doing and that they, there was gonna be these beautiful virgins on the other side waiting for them. What a rude awakening they had when they didn't see beautiful virgins, they just saw the flames of hell, by the way. But, Here's the thing, they really thought that what they were doing was true, but none of those guys would have died for a known lie. None of them. What's your point? My point is that the apostles had not seen the resurrected Christ. Then what they did is they allowed themselves to be martyred for a known lie, a bold-faced lie. Nobody does that. That never happens. And they did die horrible deaths. Again, in, in that book that a lot of you guys need to read it, More Than a Carpenter, Josh McDowell says this, Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified. James was killed with the sword. John, he survived. He was imprisoned on Patmos and he died a natural death. Philip was crucified. Bartholomew, crucified. Thomas, killed with a spear. Matthew, murdered with a sword. James, the son of Alphaeus, crucified. Thaddeus, killed by arrows. Simon the Zealot, crucified. All they had to say was, 
if they really didn't see Jesus, okay, think about this. All they had to say was they're being led to be martyred. Wait, time out. I made it all up. (laughs) Please don't crucify me upside down. Please don't shoot arrows into my heart. It was a lie. But it wasn't a lie. It was absolutely true. And that's why they were willing to die the horrible deaths that they died. Look at verse 8. Is this making sense to you guys? And then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of all the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And so your last point here, last evidence, the evidence of Paul's changed life. Okay, How many of you guys have read the book of Acts? Can I see your hands? Just make sure. All right. So you know that Paul was a self-righteous, zealous Pharisee in his B.C. days. And the last thing he ever wanted to do was become a Christian. In fact, he hated Christians. He believed with all his mind and heart that Jesus of Nazareth was a false messiah. The apostle Paul believed In his young days, he was a false Messiah. And when thousands of Jews start following Jesus as their Messiah, Paul loses it. He goes to the high priest. He gets permission to throw these Jews who are turning to Jesus as Messiah into prison. And he becomes like a wild animal. Do you guys remember this? He's hunting down Christians. He's throwing them into prison. The low point of his life is when he used his authority as a Pharisee to authorize the stoning of an amazing Christian named Stephen. And there, the young Saul, that's his Hebrew name. Paul is the Greek name. There he stands holding the cloaks of these young, zealous radicals getting ready to stone Stephen. And Stephen, right before they started to stone him to death, He looks up into heaven. This is so awesome. And he says, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What does that mean? When Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, he says he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Well, for Stephen, he stood up. He said, come on home, son. And he allowed Stephen to see that. And it became, it, the hard-hearted made them even more mad. And they're, they're taking these rocks. It wasn't like little pebbles, boop, boop. No, they take big rocks and they're like right here and slamming it down on them. And as he's passing from this life to the next, he cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I wonder if those words that Paul heard impacted him at all. We know in Acts chapter 9, Paul's upset. He's on his way to Damascus to imprison Christians, Christians way up in Syria. And you know the story. Jesus appears to Paul. Saul, he uses his Hebrew name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's like, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Paul's on the, on the dirt. and here, Here's what he says. What do you want me to do, Lord? What do you want me to do, Lord? Complete surrender. And then all of a sudden, what happens in Paul's life? 
It went from his head to his heart. And wow, did it ever go to his feet. And the greatest enemy of Christianity became the greatest champion of Christianity. Did you know, he said, I labored more than all of you. It's estimated that Paul served the Lord. While he's serving the Lord, he covered about 5,580 miles on foot or on donkey. 5,580 miles. 6,770 miles by sea. In 20 years, the guy evangelized an area of 1,500 miles. That's from here to Maine. He planted churches all over the Roman Empire. He wrote most of the New Testament. He went from the greatest enemy of Christianity to the greatest champion of Christianity. More evidence that what we believe is absolutely true. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.